Welcome on in to the Superintendent Radio Network and the second episode of our special More Than Turf podcast series. More Than Turf is a new series brought to you by FMC and the FMC True Champions program, and it examines some of the job responsibilities of superintendents and other turf pros far beyond the agronomic details of tees, greens, and fairways. I'm Matt Lowell, managing editor of Golf Course Industry Magazine and the host of More Than Turf, and I'm joined today by legendary turf pro Matt Schaefer, who seems pretty happy in retirement after a decades-long career that wrapped up just a few years ago at Marion Golf Club in Ardmore, Pennsylvania, just north of Philadelphia. In this episode, Matt and I will be talking about developing people on and off the course, his tactics and tips, what he would do differently today, and what will always work. Labor has long been the biggest challenge in the turf maintenance industry, and now it's the biggest challenge in just about every industry across the country, which makes this episode somehow both evergreen and urgent at the same time. A quick heads up, if you know Matt, you know he's always unfiltered. There are a few more curses than normal in this episode. Nothing extreme. You won't feel like you're in the middle of a Scorsese or Tarantino movie, but I just wanted to let you know. Before we dive in, a word from our sponsor, FMC, is committed to bringing innovative solutions and industry support to improve how superintendents manage their course. From groundbreaking products to your own professional development as a superintendent, FMC is firmly committed to the future of the golf industry. Sign up for a free sample of the powerful premix Kalita Fungicide at www.kalidafungicide.com and discover the benefits when a next-generation DMI, Nutriafol, meets a novel SDHI, Fluindapyr. Kalita fungicide will tackle your most problematic diseases, including anthracnose, take-all root rot, bipolaris leaf spot, large patch, brown patch, and fairy ring. And be sure to enroll in the FMC Give Back to Local Chapters program and learn how to earn real money directly for your local GCSAA chapter. It's all part of the FMC True Champions program online at www. .fmctruechampions.com. And now, the entertaining, the informative, the inimitable, Matt Schaefer. My guest again on this issue of More Than Turf is longtime legendary turf pro, Matt Schaefer. Matt Schaefer, most recently at Marion, but now very happily retired and splitting time between Florida and Pennsylvania. I think you've earned it. Oh, thanks. I think every superintendent's earned it. Absolutely. Uh, Before you were a head superintendent, when you were an assistant, when you were coming up, maybe when you were even a teenage crew member, what sort of skills and what sort of career development did your bosses pass along to you that really stuck around in your head? You know, it was a totally different time. I was an assistant at 72, three and four. So the issues that we deal with now, like no labor didn't exist. 
work ethic, everybody was a hard worker back in those days. It's just the way it was, you know, there was a different mindset. Our biggest challenges back then were, you know, no money, not a sophisticated business. And it was a totally different deal when I was in that first wave of educated superintendents. Most all the superintendents prior to that were uh, just farm boys or, you know, uh, one of my good mentors was just coming out of the military at Green Beret. So he was all about discipline and working hard. And uh, I'll never forget, uh, <laughs> Bill was a character. He was a, I was his assistant at Shawnee on the Delaware. He was a tough guy. If you were late, you had to clean the toilet. You know, you had to clean the bathroom. <laughs> so he would say, well, you know, we've had a lot of late guys, Schaefer, go in there and smear some grease on that bolt so they got something to scrub on. <laughs> so he was, he was, but he was all, one of the things that he instilled in me real early on was he'd say, listen, you know, that there's a natural tendency. You have three employees. One's really good, one's mediocre, and one's poor. And they're all late on the same day. And the poor guy you'll fire, the mediocre guy you'll warn, and the good guy you won't say a word to. And he said, and all that's wrong. He said, you have to treat all of them the same. You, whether it's all three get fired, all three get a warning, but don't not ever say anything to them. You got to be consistent, which is amazing because at that time there was, you could fire anybody anytime and there wasn't any repercussions. It was wide open, full throttle. So but nowadays, obviously, you, you can't do that. So, you know, he was a disciplinarian. My next boss was Jack Mortland. He was a superintendent at Tanneman in the Poconos. And then he, he was way looser. He just was. He was a great agronomist, but he was a loose leader. But it was ironic if you watched him, you know, he would, uh, he was really an effective leader. He, uh, he guided us. He never really steered us, but we had great employees, everybody seemed to have a great attitude and were, you know, genuinely interested in making him look good. And then obviously I became a superintendent for 13 years and then my career went, I was just stuck. And uh, I started all over and I became Paul Latchell's assistant at Augusta. And there, I mean, it was brutal. You know, I watched him under severe stress and you know, and how he handled it some days really well, some days not so well, and some days really badly. But you know, uh, you know, and consequently, that was my concern, you know, because I knew he was under considerably more stress than I ever was as a country club superintendent. So we talked incessantly about that. And he, he guided me through that and taught me how to do tournament championship maintenance, which is never taught, it's learned. I learned a little bit from all of them and uh but you know my father was really instrumental in uh making me who i am you know and really probably instilled all my values and how i lead people to this day so those four people were probably the most influential people in the way i lead through the years i can't imagine you had to clean the bathroom more than once if you had to do it at all i feel like you learned that lesson real quick <laughs> I think he liked it. He, you know, he, he said, look, you know, when you're disciplining somebody, make sure, you know, it, it doesn't taste good. You know, that it's, it's something you never want to do again. And he said, I, can, I don't know anybody that likes to clean bathrooms. So he said, I just, 
being in the military, that was something that just resonated with me. And I mean, if he had a habitual guy, didn't care, then he would make him do something really disgusting. He would find himself in the bunker on the bunker team for days on end, you know, and then they would come to Bill and say, Hey, I'm tired of working in the bunkers and Bill would say, I'm tired of you being late. So, you know, it's up to you, not up to me. You know, that's just the way he was. He was a great guy though. Everybody loved him. He was tough, strict, but, and I mean, you know, Fred Waring, I don't know if that name means anything to you, mm -hmm. but he owned the resort at the time and Fred would come over and make all these demands of Bill and they'd be in the office for an hour and Mr. Waring come out and they'd say, how'd it go? And he said, well, like always, you know, Bill got his way and it doesn't seem as though I got mine. <laughs> and I thought, wow, what an effective guy that guy was. You know what I mean? He was just a phenomenal debater. Never lost his cool. Never. Never saw him mad, complete control of his emotions. He was an amazing guy. One other real quick follow-up, because I remember the first time we really talked, it was about budgets and budgeting, and everybody always loves numbers and, and, and dollar figures. When you started as an assistant in 1972, do you remember what your salary was? Oh, no, I worked hourly. Oh, my gosh. Okay. And I was probably about three, 310. 320 an hour, but okay. I made good money because I worked a lot of overtime. But you have to remember, you know, I mean, I I was driving a 62 Impala Super Sport with a 409 and a four speed and I probably, I bought it used, I bet I didn't pay more than three grand for it. <laughs> and that car today would sell for 150,000. So you, you, you know, that puts everything into perspective. You know, if you look up what things cost in 1974, oh, sure. a gallon of gas was, probably 30 cents, you know, so it's all relative. Yeah. The biggest takeaway, at least from my perspective, is always treating people fairly. And you learned that from every one of your mentors. How did that translate when you were given that first round of leadership? And then after you left Augusta uh, and you had more leadership as, as the top guy, I imagine you were always a treat everybody the same kind of leader. People say I was easy and hard to work for. So I remember before I went to Augusta, we didn't, I was at a really great golf club up in Altoona, Pennsylvania, and we just didn't have a big staff. We had a really good club though. And there, you know, it didn't feel like I'd led as much, but I had a great team. So like in the, the way I operated is in the mornings we would meet and we a lot of times we never see each other again all day because we were so busy. Sometimes we'd see each other at lunch, but not very often. So I would list all the tasks that had to be done that day. And then everybody had a different color of magic marker as their task was completed. You would check next to the name at the end of the day. I'd make note of who did the hard jobs and who was doing all the easy jobs. And then that's how you got a raise. I mean, it was very easy. It was a straightforward way of leading, but it was real simple. If somebody would get lazy, you know, the rest of the crew would kind of handle it. Like somebody so-and-so is not feeling good. We picked up his slack. Okay. I don't care. I don't care. There's seven of us. It's got to get done and we don't leave until it's done. So somebody's slacking, you know, you six guys got to pick it up because one of us is having a tough go of it. And it worked to perfection, it just did. So, but then, you know, later on in life, 
You know, you got to change with the generations. You know, the generations aren't going to change for you. I'm, I think I told you that once before. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, the young people that worked for me at the end of my career could work just as hard as the people that worked at the beginning of the, my career. The difference was in the beginning, nobody ever expected to get days off. And in the end, everybody wanted days off. So that was really the biggest difference. I, I'm a delegator. I'm not in your face. I mean, I did get in their faces if they were out of line, you know, because I definitely was a disciplinarian. There's no doubt about it. I was one of those guys that hoped it'd go away. I made it go away. <laughs> you know? So that's the leadership style. What was your style of employee development? What were some of the, other than treating everybody the same, delegating, but also being a bit of a disciplinarian, what were some of the employee development styles that you used over the years? I had friends that were always looking for the perfect employee and I never looked for that. I looked for the person that had the most potential and then I made that employee what I wanted. I mean, you know, not, I hate to say it that way because I didn't clone employees. You know, the only, you know, the only person that's like you is a person that has the same interest as you and is the same personality type. Trying to take a person that's not at all like you and be like you, you'll have nothing but it. It'll be a massive failure. So, um, but I was pretty uh, sharp on personality testing. So I knew who would work well together. I mean, I just couldn't believe it. That was taught to me at Hershey and I just couldn't believe that that would be. But every time I try to throw a ringer in there and never work, it would just completely disrupt the apple cart. So I was, uh, but I didn't hire all the same people either. I like to miss, you know, it's good to have a guy that's fastidious and slow, and then it's good to have a couple rabbits. And then it's always good to have somebody that's a thinker and then a couple doers and, you know, having everybody the same invites failure in my opinion. There are no obviously hard and fast rules. Every situation is different and every employee is different, but are there certain things that superintendents today should absolutely do when working with their younger assistants, their younger crew members who they're trying to develop for more responsibility, more leadership down the road? Well, number one is you better know what you're not good at. Okay. Superintendent. That's, that's the first thing, you know I mean? And it's amazing. You know, I go out and I visit people that aren't, didn't work for me. Now, if you work for me, I figured out what your fallacy was and then I gave you a full dose you overate on that, you know, I mean, it was, we worked on your fallacies until you, they weren't your fallacies. Like they would say, I'm sick of this. And I said, I don't give a shit. You're not done yet. You know, when you've, when you've rectified the problem, we'll move on to the new next issue. Like I had people that would just be brutally hard on the staff. And I wasn't, I didn't like that. You know, I said, look, you, that's not the way to leave, particularly today. That's never going to work. You're not going to, you'll have no, crew retention at all. They'll quit on the middle of the year. They will never come back for you. I said, you have to appeal to people to work. That doesn't mean you beg them. I had this system. I should tell you about my system, I guess, at Marion. And, and everybody said, oh, you do that because you have them for a long time. Well, that was the end result. But the really, the, the whole premise of keeping them for a long time was it took a long time to teach them. But you can't just think that with you're going to get a guy that's in college and you're going to turn them into a man in like three months that doesn't happen you know it just doesn't 
First, the biggest thing is if you can help them understand who they are, then they have a real shot of being really good. If they don't know who they are, and believe me, I know a bunch of superintendents don't know who they are and they struggle. You know, they're probably single or divorced. A wife will get you straightened out real quick in that regard. <laughs> I would had interns. I got a lot of interns. Plus, I hired people that weren't in the program at all. Just, you know, some people would come to me, school teachers and uh, high school kids. And, you know, and if they liked, and people like to be successful. People like to work hard. People like to see the fruits of their labor. And then once you get them into that groove where they like this and they like being around young people, they like being around successful people, they like to be a part of a successful team, they like to be able to see what they do on a daily basis, it becomes infectious. And then, you know, when you get that rolling, man, you're golden because people want to join your team. So then, then from there, you know, you become a spray tech, which really helps you um, you start to lead here, but not without, without any authority, because this is where you're a teacher. And really, leadership is teaching. If you're not a good teacher, I used to tell guys, look, if you're a great agronomist and a poor communicator, you need to find another mentor. If you're a great a communicator and a poor agronomist, man, we got no issues. We'll get you straightened right out. So, uh, and all my guys had to go to Dale Carnegie. They hated it. Yeah, they hated that, you know, because they were working hard, they were tired and here on their spare time. You know, Dale Carnegie's a wonderful course and it makes them learn to communicate and they get critiqued in that regard. They were expected to interact with the green chairman and they got a steady dose of working with our GM and our golf pro. And they, and both of them bought into what I was trying to do and uh, and they had different management approaches. The pro was a pretty easygoing guy, but he has to be because he's got to be able to take a punch, you know, because they have a tough job and then the GMs are tough. They just are. They got to be tough. They got to be hard on you for man money and workman's comp, safety. I hate that job. I'd hate to be a GM. I'd be out of nice by noon. So then from there, they became an assistant in training, which was really hard position. This is where you started to figure out if they were going to make it. They, here they had to learn, lead without any authority. So really it was a way you had to appeal to the guys to work. And then you got became an assistant, and then you became a senior assistant, ultimately a superintendent, and you left. And it was a five- to seven-year rotation. But, you know, you take a guy that's 20, he's probably not really ready to jump into a six-figure job until he's 26 or seven anyways. And when they leave Marion, they, they know who they are. They're rock-solid uh, agronomists. They're good leaders. Politics is hard to teach, so they have to learn that on their own. Yeah, they're good. They're all doing really well. And, you know, really good guys, they – they, they start, they're a sponge, and then they start to learn, and then they start to question, and then they observe, and then they leave. That's really what happens. So, and you can see their maturation through the process, and some guys don't make it. They just don't, you know. I mean, I've, not, not often, I'd say maybe, maybe two or three percent. You got to bring them in the office and say, from my opinion, you're not going to make it. 
you know, you're just not going to make it. I mean, I, I think I might have told you this, and I had a great guy. Oh, my goodness. He was unbelievable. The easiest guy I ever taught. He was ready to go at 23. And uh, his wife hated the hours. She just hated him to the point where she came and talked to me about it, which I had to give her a lot of credit because, you know, I was pretty prominent and I was old and stodgy and looked old and stodgy, you know, and had a big office at Marion. She came right in and said, Mr. Schaefer, I got a problem with my husband's hours. And I said, well, that's the business. She said, yeah, it's not going to work. Well, then he's got to get out of the business. So then I brought him in and I told him, hey, you're going to have to leave the business. Why? Well, because your wife doesn't like working the hours and I know you love her and you don't want to divorce her. So something's got to give. So you got to get out. He did. Hmm. And he's uber successful today. Super successful. So um, it's not for everybody. And if you think, if you try to trick yourself into thinking it is, you're not going to make it. It'll eat you alive. Do you remember, especially during the Marion years, when you had that program in place, that five to seven year program, do you remember how many folks came through who went on to become head superintendents at their own club? Yeah, I mean, I've placed a lot of people. And even before Marion, I mean, at the country club in Cleveland, mm -hmm. at Hershey, I placed a lot of superintendents, I think 50. Wow. And probably over 200 assistants. So. I wasn't necessarily mentoring people, but people later on in life would call me and say, or text me, or they still contact me on LinkedIn or Messenger and say, man, the years that I worked for you were invaluable. And they're realtors, car dealers, you know, they in all walks of life, doctor, there's a doctor. I learned so much about myself when I worked for you, you know, but it's because we were a family. We weren't a you know, we weren't, these weren't just people. These weren't just hourly flesh out there. You know, we were a team and we worked hard as a team. And when one guy would struggle, they would, they'd help him up and they, we'd all go together. You know, that's a big deal. You got to have that team mentality. I did it because I hired a lot of former Marines coming out of Afghanistan and Iraq. Those guys needed a break and they were messed up. They had PSTD bad. And working with this group of people was very helpful with them. I had old guys, I had an old gunny sergeant from Marine that was a heavyweight champion of the Marine Corps. He was a tough dude, but he had a real soft underside and he was a great leader. Had former superintendent was our agronomist, former superintendent was our project leader great mechanic. These people all led. Whether they knew it or not, they did. I'll tell you what, I wasn't the best superintendent, but by damn, I'm a pretty damn good team builder. That's what it takes. It takes unity, continuity. It just does. Bringing in all those Marines, uh, there have been there have been a handful of good programs, and there's actually one out of Augusta now, uh, Operation Double Eagle, trying to bring in uh, injured veterans to kind of leadership roles in the turf industry. Where did you get that inspiration? Does that go all the way back to Bill in the seventies when he was a green beret and you saw that, or, or was it something else? It's funny when I hired this gentleman's name was Robert Fleck. Everybody called him lefty because he was a South pole when he boxed. It really probably came from him. 
he uh, he started working with me at Marion. Now I'd had some veterans before him that I was really impressed with. For some reason, I always had veterans. I even in Ohio, I had a guy that was uh, my carpenter and project manager. He was a veteran. They just they're just disciplined. They are decisive. They you know they work hard. And those are things that a lot of young people don't possess. So working with guys every day that isn't necessarily their boss, but they have that in their, in their DNA, that's a big deal. They get that through osmosis, you know? So, uh, yeah, I don't know. And I mean, we had some problems. We had some guys that came that really had severe issues that we struggled. And in one instance, it didn't work. So, you know, and we had to reach out, but Lefty kind of took all that, anything that was a bit out of our realm for, you know, it's hard with a guy that has severe PSTD to work for a guy that wasn't in the military. I said, well, I don't make the rules, but I make the rules. So, you know, unless you want to re-enlist, you're listening to me. And if you don't like listening to me, then you can hit the dusty trail. So then that guy told me this is the best place I've ever worked. It's the closest thing to the Marine Corps I've ever seen. <laughs> I thought, oh boy, I don't know about that. I thought I was a loose leader. I don't know that, that my perception of my leadership is is well founded. But um, I don't know. It's uh, I enjoyed leading people. I did. Didn't wear me out. You know, I worked for a boss one time. Great guy. And he said to me, how many more people do I have to train? I'm thinking probably a thousand. I don't know. But, you know, that's something that's, you know, but I'm sure everybody feels that way at some point in time. I know guys retired and they say they don't, they'll never miss being a leader. That's the one thing they hated. But they were good leaders. I don't know, you know, they just wore them down. Just burn out, yeah, over time. How do you walk the line? between kind of putting your personal stamp on on young folks, especially when they're with you for five to seven years, you're creating not not really carbon copies of yourself, but to a degree, you know, mini Matt Schaefer's and allowing those folks to kind of branch out and become their own unique turf personality. So the the difference between making mini Matt Schaefer's and, and really just developing individuals. How, how do you balance that line? Well, I was a real delegator. There was no doubt about it. And people like, I'll tell you a story. One time, you know, uh, we were all together as Paul Latchaw and all his former superintendents. And we were at the National. There was a crap load of us in that room. I mean, Paul placed a tremendous amount of people. And one thing about Paul was he was a pretty tight micromanager. I mean, he had his hands on all the keys. Now, I wasn't like that at all. I, and everybody in the group always thought I was so loose. And so Paul and I were sitting there at breakfast and we looked up and all these guys are on their cell phones talking to their assistants, you know, about today and what's going on. And Paul said to me, you're not going to call. I said, nope, I'm not calling. If I got a call, I didn't put the right guy in the chair. I wouldn't call him all week. And I'd say to him, you know, I go back. When you call people like that all the time, Paul, you used to call me all the time. You used to drive me insane. Like if Remember that one morning? He said, oh, yeah, I remember that morning. I said, you call me one more time. You might as well just forget about vacation. Just come on down here because I'm not answering the phone anymore. That was at Augusta. <laughs> he wasn't happy. <laughs> no, I couldn't <laughs> tell. Day, I didn't answer his call. <laughs> so what I would do is, look, I'd, tell, I'd teach him the skills. You know, I taught him championship golf. 
much like Mr. Latchall did, but I changed a few things. And, and so I gave them the skills to be who they are. When I go back and visit them, you know, their, their shops are nice and neat and clean. Their guys are in uniform. The golf course is real crisp. You know, there's no clippings laying around. There's no garbage laying around. The bunkers are edged. The greens are playing stellar. Real defined lines on the fairways, all these good radiuses. And then how they get there is different. You know, there's different guys. Some guys are better water. Some guys are better chemists. Some guys are good at everything. But in the end, you know, their golf courses are really good. They're good. All of them are happily married. They take some time off. They give their staff time off. So I gave them the building blocks and then they manage, you know, they do things some lot different than I do. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter as long as they're happy and the members are happy. That's all matters. Did you ever struggle with that? I mean, it seems like you had it in place for a long time, but was there ever a point where it was, it was a problem to develop that? No, I mean, I think it, there was certain portions of it that were more difficult at different times. Like I'm a big, I'm a firm believer in not jump and chain of command. Like I'll, we call it, the Marines always call it jump and chain. And, and so like, and this is something that's really hard to teach, but it's absolutely critical. Like when, and when they're first leading, every one of them, almost to a person breaks this rule and then they get railed. And that is like you send an assistant out and you had to remember the hierarchy. I was a director. There was a superintendent, senior assistant, assistant. So you send an assistant out, for instance, and you're airifying. So there's one group that's in charge of airification and cleanup. There's another group that's in charge of uh, top dressing. And then there's a third group that's in charge of fertility, seeding, and final watering. So you're out there as a superintendent and you don't like how something's being done. You don't like how the top dresser's operating the machine or you think they're wasting too much sand with spillage or... So you jump in and you start, you say to the guy, hey, that's not how we do it at Marion. That's wrong. You don't ever do that. You go to the assistant and say, hey, you're taking the eye off. You're taking your eye off the ball. These guys are down there and they're overfilling the top dresser and we're losing a half a ton of sand every time they fill up. So you got to get down there and address that problem. You understand? Said, yeah, I understand. So when you jump chain, you've just ruined the whole thing. You haven't taught the guy that's supposed to be in charge. You've taken the employee who now has the idea there's too many chiefs, not enough Indians. So, and who do I listen to? You've eroded that assistance authority. So I was really, really strict about jump and chain. Um, I don't know, did that answer your question? I get off on these. I get down these rabbit holes. <laughs> I think so, I think so. So uh, it's really critical, but I'll tell you one thing, there's guys, I've had guys I, I can think, and I should never single people out, I try not to do that, but. I had this guy that was unbelievable. His name's Pat Joy. He's a superintendent at Boot Ranch in Texas. He was so incredibly perceptive about people that he was unbelievable at reading their body language. Like it was, 
I had a girl one time, Kelly Beidelspacher. She was my assistant at the country club. She knew what somebody was going to say before they said it. She was like clairvoyant, you know, and people that are like that. Now that I think about it, I had, I had a bunch of guys that were really pretty good at that. But when people really are in tune to people's body language, it makes it easier for them to lead. You know, and then if on top of everything else, if they understand how to treat different problems different ways, then they become a really effective leader. And and it was funny because when Pat first started working for me, I'll just, you know, I'll use him as an example. He's a tough guy, so he can take, he wasn't really super strong agronomically, but wow, is he a good leader. I mean, he was a leader out of the bag. And you get a couple of those. They just are born to lead. And that was Pat. So it was a no-brainer teaching him how to be a good golf course superintendent. Agronomy was a cinch. And he was smart. Ironically, it was funny how some of the other leaders perceived him. It's so much fun watching. You know, when one guy excels at something that others are struggling at, <laughs> it's amazing how they react, you know. But uh, I mean, once again, you know, Pat was so effective, he could lead his friends and they didn't know they were being led. And I'm not sure that he knew he was leading them. That's hard. I mean, if you're like, I, you know, when we first started, if you're a superintendent and you're not a strong disciplinarian, you've got to hire a superintendent or assistant that is. You said you don't like to single people out, but you, you remember Pat, you remember Kelly, I'm sure you remember a lot of other folks who worked under you. Well, yeah, of course, of course. But how often do you still talk with them? I mean, I know you do a lot of course visits. You're very active on Twitter and LinkedIn. Is this, is this still a regular part of your day talking with folks who used to work with you? I never call them. Really? Never do. I just, uh, well, you know, most of them had their fill of me when they worked. I mean, we worked so close and we worked so long together. I can honestly tell you, I don't think I have anybody out there done like me that worked for me. Now, there's some that stay in touch real good, some that don't stay in touch at all, but, and then there's some that call me when they have a problem. That's all good. I, I don't have, you know, if you never call me, that's cool. We run into each other at the, you know, the national or at a meeting and it's like we never, like we never missed a beat. Like uh, I have a guy, his name's Mark Pucky. He's in charge of the Metro Parks in Cleveland. Mike, Mike, Mark and I never talk to each other, but, Mark's doing a phenomenal job. So, and Mark knows if he ever needs anything, I'll, and he can pick up the phone and call me and I'd be there in a heartbeat. So, you know, doesn't matter. I, you know, I have some guys that call, I have a guy in New Zealand, he and I are really good friends. We talk once a month, maybe, you know? And uh, Aaron McCurdy, there's a bunch of them. Scott Bortner, there's just a ton of these guys. They're all really Ryan Tuxhorn. I mean, I'll be upset because I'll miss somebody that I should have mentioned, you know. But then, like, I got a guy at Parkersburg Country Club in West Virginia, Pat Moore. We talk twice a year. And Doug, Doug Norwell hasn't worked for me in 25 years. He's at Camargo, and we talk probably five or six times a year. Todd Beidelspacher's at Milwaukee Country Club. Curtis James is up at Old Elm in Chicago. They're all over the place. Got a guy in Kansas and... Oklahoma and Texas, some guys they don't even where they are. You know, some are out of the business doing great. 
No, I mean, I think I was involved in their life at the most, at one of the critical junctures, and now they're on the <laughs> That's a lot. Well, as soon as they get a superintendent's job, I'll never forget this one guy. Oh, I really like him. And he said, he called me and he said, I just want you to know it's easier being a superintendent than your assistant. And I said, you wasted your money calling me and I hung up on him. <laughs> and I mean, Paul Latchaw, you know, he and I are really close. But once again, I'm of all his protégés, I may be the worst at staying in touch. Hmm. I try to reach out to him twice a year, maybe three times. I haven't seen him. And, you know, people say, oh, man, you guys are tight. You must have just seen him, right? And I said, I don't think I've seen him in three or four years. <laughs> and I don't think he thinks any less of me. And I probably should be better at staying in touch. But then I know there's guys that are after him all the time. And, and that's okay, too, you know? Spent every waking day and night together with us almost <laughs> three years at Augusta National. We lived a lifetime together. If we never saw each other again, it'd probably be okay. <laughs> you know. One real, real, real quick follow-up to that, just because you know you, you say you almost lived there. Everything about the National is famously tight-lipped, but how many hours did you work a week when you were there, do you think? I don't know. I mean, we'd work. You know, 12, 14 hour days were not out of the norm. But, you know, you had to realize uh, I was there from uh, 86 to 89. So it was a different time. You know, I know Brad, Brad Owen, who is a superintendent there now, was an intern for us. Um, and he was a grinder. That kid could work. He's from Boone, North Carolina, you know, and he's he is just one hard, hard, hard ass worker. And uh, but, I, you know. Brad's had to change. He's a smart guy. So I'm sure they're not working those hours anymore, you know, but he may have more people than I did. And he's, you know, the machinery's better. You have to change with the times you just did. Back then, man, we ground, we ground, we would, we'd work 10 weeks straight, no days off. Hmm. It would get, it would get hard. I mean, I think I worked two, over 200 days straight. And it was, it was tough, you know, and I was working some killer hours, but, you know, in the end, I knew Paul had a phenomenal reputation. He, even at that point in time, he had some phenomenal superintendents out there doing really, really great things. And I wanted to be one of those guys. So if working killer hours for him was what it took, that's what it took. That's not to say I didn't bitch at him once in a while, but, (laughs) but most of the time I didn't because he was a tough guy. And so you either took it or you left. You know, that's the way it was. That's the way he was. You know, either stay or go. If you stay, this is the way it's going to be. You are, again, happily retired. You're not on the course every day, but you do still have a lot of course visits. You do still talk with folks regularly, whether it's phone or social media, if they reach out to you most of the time. But what, what is changing about people management in this industry in the 2020s? You say every generation is a little softer than the one before. What has to change in the 2020s for people management? You know, I mean, it's really hard. I mean, it's, uh, and I'll be honest with you, when I got out, I was ready to get out. It's hard. First off, it's difficult now to be a boss because the employees seem to have more power. Not that they shouldn't have some power, but you know, at the end of the day, 
you know, there still has to be a leader and the leader still has to have clout. And if he doesn't, then he's, he's stymied. And I think that's where that's, to me, there's a lot of, well, we're going to get into politics, but I don't really care. I'm well armed, but <laughs> I'm not worried. So uh, it's a problem when you like, for instance, minimum wage. I'm, I agree. I mean, the problem with minimum wage is it hasn't been addressed in so long that they want to just take us and double the minimum wage. Which and what's the problem is it should have been going up two, three percent a year and then everything would have came with it. You just can't arbitrarily give a guy fifteen dollars an hour is making seven thirty. What do you do with the guy that was making twelve dollars an hour? Well, you gotta give him the same increase or you'll have anarchy. Well, now all of a sudden your entire payroll, while it used to be fifty percent of your budget, it's all of a sudden seventy-five percent of your budget, and that's a failure. You can't operate that way. You're not going to have enough money for chemical fertilizer, water, utilities, taxes, payroll taxes. You know, replacing equipment, equipment repairs, the whole nine yards. So, it's a conundrum, no doubt about it. And I think a lot of superintendents are, they're in that. You know, like down in Florida, a lot of the guys are using. Uh, third-party people for their staff for that very reason and um, you know they don't care if they're not legal you know they don't have to, if they have somebody they don't like they just call the um, the uh, third party and say hey I so-and-so didn't work out yesterday he's been late three days in a row don't send him send me another employee now they play a, they pay a delta for this but if you really think about it that's probably not as all that much more because you're not paying workman's comp and unemployment insurance and you're not, you know, you don't have to pay anything. You just pay a solid $22 an hour and get a guy. So, I, I mean, I see it going more and more that way if they can find it because it's, I'm telling you, it's tough. You know, you, if you're not, if you don't play exactly by the rules, you can get yourself in big trouble. When I first got into business, I said, I don't, I think it's unjust. I don't care what you think. Get in your car and get the hell out of here. You could do that. Nowadays, you can never do that. You know, and, and being a superintendent's tough. It's really hard. I mean, I can see why there's not, people aren't getting into it because it's difficult. I mean, first off, you're working for wealthy people and a lot of them never heard, don't know the meaning of no because they seldom hear it in their life. And then, a lot of guys work with not enough money. If you're in an area that has heavy industry, you're really in trouble trying to get labor because you're not competitive. I don't know. I mean, it'd be nice to have autonomous equipment, but that's a whole nother argument. You know, we only have two players in our market, so there's not a tremendous amount of competition. You know, we don't have real, probably 50% of our mechanics in the business are technical enough to run autonomous equipment. That's that's a sad scenario. Actually, we could probably go. I actually think that the whole dynamic of the staff needs to change. I think like the superintendent shouldn't put so much focus on having a stellar assistant, because quite honestly, that guy knows what you ought to know. And if you don't know it, then you should probably shouldn't sit in the chair. Instead, you know, you should probably have a really, really unbelievable equipment manager. And uh, if you can't find that guy, then you need to find that person who has that potential and then send them out and get them trained. And then the uh, second person would be a really strong irrigation tech. 
and then and have those guys teach them to be leaders and then they can help you manage the staff and then they can take a huge burden from irrigation and equipment management off your tray and then you can just focus on growing grass managing people if you were 30 right now again and just starting that chapter of your career that's what you would do i know what i'd do i would buy good software programs (laughs) i really would i'd get john deere's own golf yeah and then i'd go into community and i'd run three or four golf courses that's what I'd do. And then I'd try to get five or six of my portfolio and then I'd sell them off to a big conglomerate, do it twice and be done at 50. <laughs> so a whole different career path. Yeah. Not, not even talking about managing people at that point. <laughs> <laughs> but it's hard, hard business. If you're just getting into it and you think you're going to be the guy that makes it easy, man, I hope I live long enough to talk to you in 10 years. Because I'm pretty sure you'll find out that's not the case. It's hard. But it gets in your DNA. It just does. My wife thinks we're missing a strand of DNA. That's why we do it. We're genetically insufficient. Not modified, mind you. Insufficient. Harsh judge you live with there. I know. (laughs) With a great sense of humor. Before I let you go, always great to talk with you, Matt. Anything else you want to talk about? Anything we didn't mention in the last hour or so about developing people, developing talent? Don't look for good people. Make people good. That's the way to go. You know, it's easier, I think. You know, like what Paul had to do with me was really hard. You know, I probably wouldn't have done it. Because he had to break me down before he built me back up. Because in his mind, I wasn't where I should be in order to be a championship superintendent. And he was right. I was too cavalier. I was more interested in hunting and fishing. I mean, my primary focus wasn't golf. And he worked hard to get me to where I, he could start building me back. You know, and that was that was a big challenge, thankfully. You know, he didn't give up because I probably would have fired me back in those days. i tell you another thing. I, you know, one thing I taught my guys, we'd go all day, so I'll make this the last thing, but I used to teach them to work smart. You ask those guys. I used to yell at them constantly. You're overstaffing the job for Pete's sakes. You know, like I'd see two guys going dump clippings and I'd stop them. I said, it, I said, how many times have you been out to the compost pile and the guy driving says, I don't know, Mr. Schaefer, probably 300. Well, what's that guy sitting next to you for? And can't you figure out how to get there today? And he says, well, no, we just wanted to talk. And I said, well, that's never going to happen. I said, if you two, if I catch you two riding in a cart again to the compost site, you're going to get a steady diet of sand. And so, but I mean, I used to, they used to be worried to death. You know, like I'd say to them, and then they always wanted to work overtime because we had a big budget. And I always say, well, that's fine if you couldn't get it done in straight time. But I said, see that guy out there? That's not Jimmy. That's sixteen seventy-five an hour walking across that courtyard doing absolutely nothing. You know, and like I was stringent on breaks and lunch times. And I said, you got to work smart. You got to work efficient. And you'll get a lot more time out of your, you know, if you're working smart, you'll get way more production. So yeah, you got to work smart. I used to drill that into him. You ask him something, ask a guy, he says, oh yeah, he was all about, 
understaffing. You know, don't, and like, why is there two guys in a little bunker and one guy in a big bunker? That used to drive <laughs> me insane. You know, and a guy, a supervisor drive right past it and I call him on the radio. I said, stop right there. And then I come up to him and I said, why is there two guys in the little bunker and one guy in the big bunker? I don't like working with the big and put the guy that nobody likes in the little bunker and put the guys that like each other in the big bunker. <laughs> it's it seems, a, seems simple. simple. Yeah. yeah, it's simple, but they, you know, it's, it's not hard. It just takes effort. Being a really good golf course superintendent's hard. It's really hard. You got to play that piano with all 10 fingers. And you can't micromanage or you'll lose control. I delegated, they made mistakes, but their successes were far exceeded their mistakes. They made minor mistakes. And there was usually enough seniority on there that they didn't make the mistake, they caught each other. Well, Matt Schaefer, as always, a pleasure. Thanks so much for being on this episode of More Than Turf. And you are on Twitter. I do not remember what all the numbers after your name are, but it's uh, people, people roll around turf Twitter for about 30 seconds. They'll find you. You're on LinkedIn, lots of course visits. You're still very much a presence in this industry. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I like to help people. Thanks for having me on. You're the man. Thank you. Bye. My thanks to Matt Schaefer for taking some time to discuss how he developed people and tried to bring the best out of them in this second episode of More Than Turf. My thanks to all of you for listening, and my thanks to our sponsor, FMC, and their FMC True Champions program. From groundbreaking products to your own professional development as a superintendent, FMC is firmly committed to the future of the golf industry. Sign up for a free sample of the powerful premix Kalita Fungicide at www.kalidafungicide.com and discover the benefits when a next-generation DMI, Lutreafol, meets a novel SDHI, Fluindapyr. Kalita fungicide will tackle your most problematic diseases, including anthracnose, take-all root rot, bipolaris leaf spot, large patch, brown patch, and fairy ring. And be sure to enroll in the FMC Give Back to Local Chapters program and learn how to earn real money, cold hard cash, for your local GCSAA chapter. It's all part of the FMC True Champions program online at www.fmctruechampions.com. Subscribe to the Superintendent Radio Network wherever you listen to podcasts for new episodes of Beyond the Page, Off the Course, Greens with Envy, Tartan Talks, and More Than Turf, which this season will highlight industry leaders sharing their perspective on communication, budgeting, managing staff and developing talent, and so much more. For everybody here at Golf Course Industry, I'm Matt Lowell. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.